Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Michael Strauss, who is the chair of the Department of Astrophysical Sciences at Princeton University. He uses large-scale imaging and spectroscopic surveys of the sky to map the universe, with a particular focus on studying the large-scale distribution of galaxies to address questions in cosmology and galaxy properties and evolution. He is also particularly interested in quasars powered by supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies. Welcome, Michael. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with um, one of one of the papers, a uh, little bit older papers, talking about cosmological parameters from SDSS and WMAP. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so you say we measure cosmological parameters using the three-dimensional power spectrum from over 200,000 galaxies in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, SDSS, in combination with the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, WMAP, and other data. So SDSS is something from the ground, and WMAP is something from uh, from above, I guess. Right? That is so, correct. That is correct. Um, and both of these um, have produced a lot of data. Uh, SDSS started sometime in 2000. 2000, uh, that's right. Yeah, had a long uh, tenure of 20 years with the multiple uh, upgrades to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the WMAP sort of overlapped with it uh, between 2000 and 2010 or so before mm-hmm. Planck uh, satellite kicked in right after that, mm-hmm. right? So Yes, that's right. So we have two, uh, two sets of data and, and, and really uh, kind of combining these two data uh, and looking at um, some of the theories uh, that are being more accepted nowadays. So I want to talk a bit about uh, the type of data that we got and, um, you know, what hypotheses we could create from that. Okay, uh, so perhaps I can just say in general terms what the what the scientific program there is, and what are um, just try try to uh, explain how WMAP and STSS are connected. Yeah. So, what STSS? Let's start with STSS. So, what STSS uh, was designed to do and did was to measure the distances and therefore 
well, to measure what are called redshifts, yeah. um, which is a shift in the spectrum of a, of a galaxy caused by the expansion of the universe. Um, by measuring these shifts, which is straightforward if you can measure uh, the spectrum of, of the galaxy, you can determine how far away that galaxy is. And so one needs to remember that in when one looks at an astronomical image or looks at the sky in general, you're seeing everything as it, uh, as it appears in two dimensions. It's all in projection. And you right. and if you see a star or a, or a galaxy or anything, uh, an asteroid, you don't know at first glance, which is relatively nearby and which is far away. So to get that third dimension, one needs one needs to measure um, the redshifts. And what the Sloan Digital Sky Survey was do that on a larger scale than really had ever been done before. At the time we wrote that paper, it was 200,000 galaxies. That number has now, um, now is, is several million galaxies. Um, and- This is, uh, Michael, this is optical. Yes, yes, this is okay. this is visible visible light, a, a, yeah. a light that that your and I and our and and my eyes can see. Although, of course, with a large telescope, you're going much much fainter than yeah. than than our eyes uh, would be sensitive to. Um, so, the distribution of galaxies is 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 they're not just randomly sprinkled out there. They 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 form in in a. a um, large structures we call to refer to clusters of galaxies in which you know several thousand galaxies may be uh, all together in a relatively small volume of space um, large filaments of galaxies uh, enormous empty regions which we call voids which indeed have almost no galaxies in them at all and as astronomers first became aware of the fact that the galaxy distribution was so was so rich that there's so much structure. The obvious question is, why is that? What's the what's the physical process that's that's going on? Um, so the higher the higher the redshift, uh, the further away the galaxy is. That is correct. And and what we mean by redshift is um, that the light, uh, the wavelength uh, of the light has shifted to the uh, to, to a longer wavelength. That is, is that, that is exactly right. Yeah. So um, when you measure the spectrum, which is the intensity of the light coming from a galaxy as a function of wavelength, you see that spectrum has different features, which turn out to be uh, in the context of what we're talking about is usually due to absorption by uh, specific elements in the atmospheres so of the stars that make up that galaxy. Uh, and those features are shifted to longer wavelengths, just as you said, uh, by the expansion of the universe. And it's it's not a, necessarily a subtle effect. Uh, galaxies can have their, uh, you say if a galaxy has a, a redshift of one, that means it's been shifted by 100% relative mm -hmm. to what it would be if, they, if there was no expansion of the universe. That is, um, and and so, so this is something that we can indeed measure directly. And it, again, just as you said, gives a, um, a direct measurement of how far away that galaxy is. So, so will they will they look different optically? Uh, the, do the galaxies uh, at high redshift, for example, look yeah. different from the galaxies at lower redshift? So, in that in, in that context, what you're another, let me just rephrase that question. You're asking the yeah. question. So, let's back up slightly. Um, yeah. Remember that if it's a very distant galaxy, I said redshift of one, for example, such a galaxy is that um, uh, that light has been traveling to us for about 7 billion years. Um, rough, it's, it's not quite the same thing as saying that the galaxy is 7 billion light years away, but because of the finite speed of light, we're seeing that galaxy not as it is today, but as it was in the past. Uh, 
And so yeah. another way to ask your question is, have galaxies changed in their properties through cosmic time? And of course, the context of that is re remembering that the universe is only, um, I put that in big air quotes, only 14 billion years old um, right. since the time of the Big Bang, which means that at Redshift 1, we're looking back at to you know, roughly half uh, the current age of the universe. Um, okay. So, you know, you might well imagine galaxies must have gotten started somehow, and they presumably have evolved and changed over over billions of years. So the typical galaxy you might see at, at Redshift 1, when the universe is half of its present age, will be different than, than the galaxy we see today. So SDSS sort of provides a three-dimensional view, because using Redshift, you can determine where they might be, mm -hmm. right? So... So I've seen some sort of movies, uh, three-dimensional movies. Is that based on the SDSS data? I don't know exactly which movies you've seen, <laughs> so I can't exactly comment. But but uh, yes, there are there are movies out there that you might have seen that indeed have are based on the data, which sort of fly-throughs of the distribution right. of galaxies, and you can see those clusters and those filaments and voids that I was making reference to before. Okay. Okay. So, and and now the WMAP data, how is that? Different? So um, so in a sense. Uh, what we learn about from the galaxy data is the distribution of galaxies today and then going back somewhat in cosmic history. WMAP is yeah. measuring uh, a different phase in the universe's evolution. And in particular, the universe um, started a, a, in a hot Big Bang uh, roughly 14 billion years ago and has been expanding ever since. Uh, it's, it was hot, and one of the things that hot things do in general in physics, anything that's hot glows, gives off light. Um, and so the, if the early universe was hot, as people had uh, hypothesized, then, then all, that, all that heat should have, there should be some radiation, some light uh, emitted from that. And that yeah. was discovered, that, that, that concept was confirmed dramatically in 1965 uh, by a serendipitous discovery by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson uh, of what we now call the cosmic microwave background. Uh, cosmic background radiation. Uh, so that right. is light, as it were, left over from the Big Bang, is, is a, a poetic way of saying it. Um, what WMAP, WMAP stands for Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe. So microwave is the same microwave that I was talking about, the cosmic microwave background. Uh, anisotropy is trying to measure whether there's any structure whatsoever in the, in I'm going to use the abbreviation CMB, Cosmic Microwave yeah. Background. Um, you can ask the question, the present-day universe is very structured. We see these clusters and these filaments and the voids, um, which stretch over distances of millions or tens of millions of light, of light years. Um, while when you measure the Cosmic Microwave Background, you see it's incredibly smooth. And so <laughs> one of the fundamental questions becomes, how did... And again, that is what you were seeing there is, crudely speaking, the leftover light from the Big Bang. It's a, it is a measure of what the, what the universe looked like, as it were. It turns out, when you go through the details, it's, it's, you're measuring um, at a time about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. We could go into digression where that comes from. But in any case, you're seeing the light from 400,000 years after the Big Bang, and the present day is is 14 billion years later. It's quite a bit later. So the universe seemed to have been incredibly smooth back then, and yet it's very structured yeah. today. And so one of the fundamental questions becomes, 
how do we get from from uh, uh, there uh, to here, or from then to now? I guess is a better way to say it. Right. And right. Um, so, our our present understanding of that is that um, that um, imagine you have a region of space where it's slightly more dense, a little bit more mass is associated with this region of space than any other, because it has a bit more mass, it has a bit more gravitational pull, and material will material meaning gas. Uh, we're not. We haven't made any stars yet. Um, our <laughs> galaxies might might start falling towards that, and therefore increase the density a little bit more. And that. So W map. Uh, so W map created that CMB. I know that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Planck uh, data since then. Yes. Just just improved. That, that that's right. Oh. Yes. What what? Okay. Yeah. So just to finish the logical uh, yeah. thread. Um, we infer from the fact that the universe is very structured today that there must have been some structure at a very subtle level in the cosmic microwave background, and that's what WMAP has measured. The microwave anisotropy probe, the anisotropy means the deviations from perfect smoothness, uh, which WMAP measured uh, quite well. And as you said, the Planck satellite uh, from the European Space Agency just did that much better. Uh, and it's really, really small, right? The the differential yeah, like a few microcalculations. It's a different, yeah. It's a difference of one part yeah. in a hundred thousand. Um, so yes, um, the the effective temperature of the cosmic microwave background is two point seven degrees Kelvin, and the typical fluctuations are one part in a hundred thousand of that. Yeah. So you're right. right. Uh, it it becomes micro Kelvin. Um, if tens of microkelvin is is what's what's being measured, but the amazing story is, and that and that comes back to the paper that 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 you quoted, is that you can put together the measurements of the fluctuations seen in the early universe from the cosmic microwave background, and the measurements of the structure from the galaxy distribution today, and try to put together a single coherent picture about how the one might have evolved into the other. One does this statistically. Yeah. Uh, with things like the power spectrum, which is is some jargon we could we could go into, um, but it um, we can't we now have a fairly complete understanding of uh, what the universe was like four four hundred thousand years after the Big Bang and how it formed into the structures we see today, and that was really the point of the paper. But let me just and, sorry uh, sorry yeah. I, once you get me started no, I don't I don't shut up here um, what. In order to, to make that connection, there are some un, um, free parameters that you need to know about. And those parameters yeah. end up being quantities like just how much dark matter is there in the universe, how much dark energy, which we may find ourselves coming back to talk about, is there in the universe? What is the expansion rate of the universe? There's a, about five or six such numbers. Some of them are a little bit more, uh, a little bit more technical th than those as well. Uh, and those, you need to include those to, to get a full picture. And, uh, but the amazing story is that it really does fit together with five or six numbers we can actually describe in a statistical way, both the, what's seen in WMAP and what's seen in SDSS uh, to, to really exquisite precision. So, so the the accepted theory today is lambda mm -hmm. CDM, and and so in the paper, the, the parameters, the sort of the fundamental parameters like uh, Hubble constant and mm -hmm. so on. Um, so we got all of that uh, by SDSS and WMAP, uh, and when the Planck data came in, uh, 
did those things get just refined or yes did, the, yeah. the, the first answer is yes of course people um, look very very carefully to see what one of the questions is you know I just told the story that there's this beautiful concordance as it were between what one sees in the cosmic microwave background and in the large-scale distribution of galaxies and you know at first Scientists are always delighted when they, they have a simple picture that describes everything. And they work on that and they, the error bars get smaller and smaller and they measure things ever better and everyone's happy. And at a certain point, people say, you know, um, <laughs> this is fun, but it sure would be interesting to find something new. And part, of, part right. of the motivation for finding something new is I've already made reference to dark matter. I've already made reference to dark energy. Um, those yeah. are labels that we give to concepts that are required in the equations, and we can talk about each of those in turn. But if you really want to ask the question, what 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 are these things physically? You'd like to have more than, gee, it all fits together beautifully, which is not yet a full explanation to, okay, what is the dark matter made of? What is this dark energy thing that you're talking about? <laughs> and so astronomers have been very eager to, to find chinks in the armor, to find um, flaws in the logic or... Um, uh, disconnects, disconnects that where things don't fit together because that could be pointing towards something fundamentally new, and and we're 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 never satisfied. We're never satisfied. Oh, we have a a model that where we know how much dark energy there is and how much dark matter is, and it all fits together, and we're all happy. But then you you know you want you there's still basic unanswered questions that the way to address them might be to 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 find some some um, some aspects in which things don't quite fit together. Yeah. Right, right. So, the, so the, the little I understand about this, Michael, so there is a general consensus that the overall proportions, about 70% dark energy, 25% mm -hmm. dark matter, and 5% uh, matter that we right. can see, uh, uh, there's a general consensus around that, but we, we really don't know what we mean by that, dark that, energy. That dark is right. Matter, that, right. Well, dark matter, we understand better than dark energy, uh, and I can expand yeah. on that statement. Uh, but uh, but no, we don't. If it, the basic question of what either of those things actually uh, are, uh, we, we we do not have an answer to that yet. Yeah, let's talk about dark matter a bit because I know that is one of the um, one of the objectives of LSST that we will yeah, talk yeah. about next. And so maybe it's it's good to set the context around dark matter. I know that there are a lot of candidates. Uh, WIMPs, neutrinos, mm -hmm. uh, primordial <laughs> uh, black holes, and so on. And so, so what is our sort of current expectation of what that looks like? Well, um, so um, one such candidate, sort of everyone's favorite, is that in the early universe, um, our, our modern understanding of the hot Big Bang is that various particles were created out of the, the very hot. We, one can, using our understanding of physics, we understand that with an high enough temperatures, one can make all kinds of particles. And that's where the protons and neutrons and electrons and neutrinos and everything else came from. And and maybe there was something else, which is a hypothetical new particle that makes up the dark matter. Yeah. Uh, and when one goes through those ideas and tries to imagine what that hypothetical particle might be, there's, a, a, there's um, one particularly strong theoretical candidate that comes out that's called a WIMP, a weakly interacting massive particle, which is, uh, it's a clever acronym, uh, but, but its name <laughs> describes what it is. Weakly interacting is a technical term about the, the kind of interactions it, 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 it has with itself and with other particles. Um, 
Yeah. But if if dark matter is made of wimps, we should we should there should be wimps in our uh, streaming uh, through us right now because there's sort of dark matter everywhere, and it's weakly interacting, which is not means that it interacts at least a little bit. And so, based on that hope, um, people have developed. This is not my work at all. People have developed um, very sophisticated laboratory experiments to try to detect this this stuff, and have yeah. done have done. They've become, in a sense, victims of their own success, which is to say that they <laughs> the the sensitivities of these are getting so great that the wimp and they haven't found anything yet um, that the wimp mo- <laughs> the wimp model is starting to look. Um, like it may not work after all. And people are getting a little nervous about that because that was sort of our <laughs> cleanest and best story of what the dark matter might be made of. Um, and it's not working right. at the moment, which is really, really um, sort of uh, exciting and a little scary. <laughs> um, it says that you know, right, we're, right. We've, maybe we're barking under um, some sort of wrong tree. Um, yeah, as an engineer, Michael, and I left engineering a long time ago, but uh, my intuition would have been the theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah no, no. But, and of course, the theorists are infinitely um, creative and are constantly coming up with new ideas. Um, there's a whole there's a whole story why the wimps are particularly compelling. Um, but again, if, if it doesn't agree with what's what's experimentally um, uh, seen, then then um, it becomes, of course, quite a bit less compelling. Um, and the other candidate yeah. is neutrinos, right? And the masses of neutrinos. And there's something something else that came out of SDSS and WMAP. Mm-hmm. So um, astronomer, um, physicists have long, when, when people first realized that neutrinos existed, the simplest hypothesis was that there was no mass associated with these at all. They, were, they traveled at the speed of light, just like photons, particles of light. Um, but um, as people thought about it further, they realized there's no a priori reason that they have to be massless. Maybe they do have some mass. And then, and again, the, they should be created in enormous numbers in the Big Bang. And then you try to ask whether they might have, might, there might be enough of them uh, to create, to, to explain the dark matter. And to make a long story short, neutrinos don't work um, for two yeah. reasons. First of all, we now know, we, we, I mean, we, we do know now with confidence that neutrinos have mass. We don't know how much it is, but we know it's very small. And with those limits on what the mass might be and, uh, the, and the numbers, we, we have a pretty good estimate of, of how many neutrinos there, there should be. There's simply not enough to, to make up the dark matter. That's, that's the simplest way to explain why, why okay. neutrinos end up not working after all. Um, another, that's another disappointment in, in this regard. <laughs> the other fundamental parameter is the Hubble um, yes. Hubble constant, and um, you got you know fair amount of precision around that out of SDSS and WMAP, and then I understand that there was another measurement um, from the supernovae that seemed to sort of disagree right. With so that, this is right? this is so, very much yeah. uh, sort of. I was saying earlier that um, there's great excitement or there's great eagerness in the scientific community to find chinks in the armor, to find uh, discrepancies. And what you're referring to is exactly that. So as, as, um, as your listeners may know, the Hubble constant measures the ex- expansion rate of the universe. And there's a whole variety of different ways to do this. And astronomers have been trying to do this since the time of Hubble himself back in, in the 19, 1930s. Um, 
Yeah. And now the measurements have gotten astonishingly precise. And one way to, to it's expansion rate of the universe. It's a measure of how fast a galaxy is moving away relative to, to its distance. So it, in, that sounds straightforward. You measure the distance, you measure how fast it's moving away from the redshift, you're done. Um, so that's one one uh, approach, and um, many different uh, variants on that particular theme. But crudely speaking, the the number that comes out in funny astronomer units is about seventy two or seventy three. Um, when the the other way to do it is to measure measure the detailed fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background from first WMAP, and now you mentioned the, the Planck satellite, which has made more precise measurements, and and that gives you um, slightly more indirectly a measure of the expansion rate of the universe. And when you go through that in the same funny units, it, the number comes out to be 67. So 67 versus 73-ish, <laughs> and then everyone just starts arguing. And so if someone made a mistake somewhere, <laughs> is there a systematic error? What happens if we use this other measurement that gets us 71 instead of 73? Um, at the moment, it looks like a real discrepancy, which has gotten people all excited again, because it says, this is, you know, we were getting a little bored by just how beautifully everything was fitting together. We need, we need something <laughs> new to give us a new handle on, on something. We, we really want to discover something fundamentally new rather than uh, just, just see it all fit beautifully together. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Michael, somebody else said, you know, it used to be 50 That's right. and 100. We used right, to right, 75. Average, you know, 75 sort of work. Now we are really worried about 67 yeah, yeah, yeah. and 73. You know, it's good yeah. enough for government work. Yeah, no, the history, <laughs> uh, when I was a graduate student, I'm now old enough, I can say that when I was a graduate student. Indeed, it was the 50 versus 100 uh, were the values over which people battled, and but with enormous uncertainties. And, um, and now... Um, now, these two quite different ways of measuring it are getting what seem to be statistically significant differences. And, and again, wh whether, so of course, again, the theorists are having a field day and inventing um, all kinds of interesting <laughs> mechanisms by which you could get this discrepancy, new, new kinds of physics that, that might possibly explain it. Right. So that brings us to uh, mm -hmm. a new toy that's being built. Um, the large synopsis. So I have to stop you right there and say so that this... it has changed its oh. name. Uh, the paper I gave you oh, okay. <laughs> just be published just before the name <laughs> changed. So uh, by uh, by a congressional um, decree, it was actually the U.S. Congress. Yeah. Uh, this was renamed to the Vera C. Rubin Observatory uh, Legacy oh, Survey okay. of Space okay. and Time, because. Um, Large Synoptic Survey <laughs> Telescope. No one knew what synoptic meant. And anyway, there's a variety of problems with right. that old title. But uh, so uh, Vera C. Rubin, uh, as you probably know, she was um, um, a groundbreaking astronomer, uh, just passed away five years ago, something like that, yeah. who uh, did many wonderful things in astronomy. But one of them is that she really... She looked at the uh, rotation, uh, what's called the rotation curves of galaxies, the way galaxies rotate, and um, came up with the most solid evidence uh, to date that uh, galaxies are um, are dominated by dark matter. That most most of the mass of a, a galaxy is in the form of dark matter, um, and so mm. um, this um, so this um, observatory. This is something. Yeah, in it's Chile, being right? it's, it's being Chile. built in Chile. Um, 
frustratingly, like so many other aspects of our lives, the construction is actually temporarily halted because of, mm. of COVID-19. Um, but um, but um, things are improving. The health situation in Chile is improving. I'm, I, I just heard, and um, things sh should start up again soon. So I don't know the geography, mm -hmm. uh, Michael. I know there are other things. Uh, there are other things being built in Chile. Yes, like right. Uh, further, further north. Uh, yeah. So Chile, Chile is a uh, is north, is yeah. well, first of all, one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Is one of my favorite places to to go. It's uh, completely <laughs> a north south country. It's a, a very very long and skinny skinny country. And I mm. say two thousand. Can't remember if it's two thousand kilometers or two thousand miles long. Uh, I should know that. Um, um, but uh, you know, on on um, on the western side, of course, is the Pacific Ocean. The eastern side is defined by the yeah. Andes Mountains, and um, and the northern parts of Chile are uh, are dry. Uh, ex extraordinarily dry, the northern parts of the Atacama Desert, mm. where uh, you mentioned the Simons Observatory, for example. Um, so that combination yeah. of mountains close to ocean and very, very dry conditions makes it really w one of the best places in the world to do astronomy. And so many of the next generation large or current and next generation large facilities, telescopic facilities are being built uh, in Chile. Uh, and the southern hemisphere also. Uh, so or? you know, when you're an astronomer and you're working from the Earth, as you as your question hints, you can you can't see the entire sky. There's parts of the sky that are, that are hidden beneath your yeah. feet, and will be no matter no matter how the Earth turns. Um, so when when uh, LSST, the Rubin Observatory, when we were first having the discussions of where to build it, that was one of the questions. It sh it, would it be more appropriate? in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere and after much discussion we decided that what we need to do is find the best site in terms of its weather how many clear nights it has and other such things and that was more important than than agonizing over whether the northern half of the sky or the southern half of the sky was 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 more <laughs> fundamentally interesting you can make strong arguments in both directions Mm. Yes. And this is an yes. optical so it, telescope. So what it, it okay. will do, it's a, it, it, it takes pictures. That's all it does. It takes pictures. It does. We were talking about yes. spectra before. Uh, th that's not something that the uh, Rubin Observatory will do. Uh, but it, what it will do is it, it will be uh, a, a particularly large telescope. So when people talk about the size of, the tel of a telescope, um, the things they care about are the collecting area, how large the mirror uh, the primary mirror is, and that mirror is about eight and a half meters across, 8.4 meters, I think is the official number. Uh, and the other aspect of it is that you want to be able to take a picture of a large swath of sky at once, The what's called the field of view of the telescope. And LSST, the Rubin Great. Observatory, will have the largest combination of of primary mirror size and field of view of, of any telescope in the world by, by a large by a large factor. So it's particularly well suited for the, the mapping exercise of just taking pictures of everything that's there. Um, the, large, the large size of the primary mirror means it's tremendously sensitive to very faint objects. Large field of view means you get a lot of objects at once. Right. Yeah, oh, this yes. is a big yeah. engineering challenge, obviously. 8.4 8. Mm -hmm. meters yeah. uh, in diameter yes. of the primary mirror. And uh, a camera that's right, that's right. to gigapixel. Uh, 
Um, and, and so, so the this, this, the project started. Oh goodness! Uh, 10 uh, years no, ago? <laughs> I first well, heard of the first <laughs> inklings of the project that I heard of was the late 1990s. Uh, Tony Tyson, uh, who was at the oh, time wow. at Bell Labs here in New Jersey, it's now at uh, UC University of California Davis, um, was was starting to think think about this. Um, and, um, but it really started taking off, becoming a serious project in the, in the 2000s. And it was formally approved uh, by the National Science Foundation saying, uh, yes, we're, we're going to put money t- into this in 2014. So. And it's also, uh, so, so if you could describe a little bit, you know, sort of the operations. I understand oh, yes. Big so as you said, 3.2 gigapixels, uh, which means yeah. that every time you take a picture, yeah. uh, which we will do every 30 seconds um, for, for 10 years straight, or at least when the sun is down for 10 years straight, uh, we will have a picture uh, with 3.2 gigapixels. That's covering an area, uh, I should remember these numbers, um, approaching 40 times the area of the full moon. Um, and if I, if yeah. I did the arithmetic in my head correctly, um, and, um, and so what, what one can do with that is, is you can take pictures of the sky and we all like, love looking at astronomical pictures, but we can take pictures of the sky and then we can do it again and then we can do it again and we do it again. So why do you, why do you keep on doing it? They say, I've got a picture. What, what more do you do? Well, the first thing that you do is you add those pictures <laughs> together. And so you get a, an effective exposure time. Yeah. That will be that will be much much longer, and you can see see very much much fainter stars and galaxies. But the other thing that you then become sensitive okay. to is everything that's changing. You can um, so we're used to thinking of the the skies, the heavens as being static, as um, changing on timescales much longer than any human lifetime. But that is the, the story is far more interesting than that. Uh, first of all, there are things that move. Uh, stars can be seen to be moving across the sky very slowly, but if you measure carefully enough over a long period of time, you can measure that. Uh, you can measure asteroids within our own solar system, and um, the Rubin Observatory will discover, um, oh, I don't remember the number, but millions, millions of, of asteroids over, over its lifetime. And yeah. That's important. Uh, if dinosaurs have um, well, this is an interesting question. I mean, we one of the scientific <laughs> motivations is to ask the question: Is there an asteroid with our name on it, one that's going to collide with the Earth? And the way you find out is by cataloging as as uh, as many asteroids as you can find and figuring out their orbits and and asking the question uh, w- whether anyone has uh, any any of them is likely to collide with us. Um, so that is certainly one of the things. Yeah. So ahead. when you take, yeah. So when you take these pictures, Michael. So so yes. there are different filters right. that you're using. So yes, uh, uh, by yeah. combining the different filters, you basically can make a color color picture. And there, um, there are six filters ranging over. Uh, this is a visible light telescope. So one ranges from the bluest, shortest wavelengths light that that the Earth's atmosphere transmits, below which the ozone layer cuts you off, uh, and goes to the longest wavelengths that the kind of detectors that we're using uh, use. If you, uh, it, it's ba- what astronomers call the optical optical range, beyond which the technology for the detectors would have to change. Um, so we we are we we will take images in those six different filters, and with that you can. 
not just make pretty color pictures, of course, which we will do, but also measure very precisely the relative brightness in the different filters gives you, tells you about the, the physical nature of the objects that we're looking at, the stars, the galaxies, the asteroids, and, and everything else. So are you moving? Oh, the absolutely. Telescope yeah, the telescope is, is just bouncing around or... the sky. Okay. Uh, and indeed, one of the things that the telescope has been designed to do is, is move very quickly for exactly that reason. You don't want to spend all your time slewing. That's the jargon that we use from one region of the sky to another. You, you like to spend as much time actually taking exposures and as little as time is uh, um, uh, going in transition from one to the other, because that's sort of wasted time, as it were. So telescope, yeah, go ahead. And make it... Yeah, good. No, no, I was just going to say, so mechanistically, you know, it, it's all robotics, right? So it, it is basically, if you turn it on, um, you do its job and get the data, Well, so or... you have to, of course, program that robot rather carefully. So indeed, there's a great deal of discussion, which is <laughs> right. um, about sort of two, two levels of, of questions. One is the one that you hint, hit, hinted at, you know, the the night the sun has just gone down. Let's open up the telescope and start exposing. And you definitely you definitely have programmed in. Here's the program for tonight. We're going to observe this field and then going to slow over to this field and this one. And uh, it's 30 seconds of pop. Is is this is the is the standard um, uh, operations that we're planning to do? And so yes, there's an algorithm that says, okay, let's try to cover the sky this way. Uh, through the night. Um, there's a broader and interesting conversation about, okay, you have six different filter, filters for every exposure, you have to decide which one. You have this idea in the back of your mind that you wanna see things change, but you also have this idea that you'd really like to measure the sky with as much sensitivity as possible. And, um, and you know the asteroids are moving quickly and the stars are moving slowly and maybe a supernova will explode and you'd like to be sensitive to that. How do you, design your uh, survey to maximize your ability to do all that science. We went through an exercise uh, yeah. now over 10 years ago where we um, tried to tabulate or um, we basically wrote a book listing all the science that could be done. And basically every paragraph of this book was a PhD thesis or potential PhD thesis. And the book was 600 pages long. And, and that was several years. 10 okay. years ago, if we were to do it again, it would probably end up being twice as long. Um, so that is, there's a huge range of different science that can be done. I mentioned the asteroids, the large scale structure of the universe that we had talked about before, uh, the most distant galaxies and, and quasars and, and everything in between. And we find ourselves wanting, wanting to do the science. We wanted to have it all. Again, we're astronomers, our tend to be very greedy and, and, uh, and say, you know, and so the much discussion of, well, if we optimize the survey to make this science uh, particularly uh, powerful, are we gonna, is that gonna be at the expense of our asteroid science or something else like that? And so coming up with that balance is a, sub, uh, a, a subject of much discussion that we're having a lot of, a lot of fun uh, sort of talking now. It's Absolutely. A, it's an it's a optimization classical optimization problem. problem. But... That's right. <laughs> One issue, one issue with, um, uh, yeah. let, me, let me make a statement, you can correct me. Uh, one issue with being prescriptive, though, is that we are bringing a set of status quo biases to That's, what to look that is for right. and where to so, look, look you at. Know, it, astronomers right? are, yeah. used, are used to this challenge. Um, you know, 
um, a colleague of mine has a mug that says something like uh, in conscious expectation of the unexpected or something like that. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> part of the spirit of this is that, um, well, first of all, we're going to allow ourselves flexibility to, to change our mind about how we're going to, how we carry out the observations if, if, if we see compelling reasons to do so. But, you know, what astronomers do is they, they take these series, picture, yeah. these series of pictures and we keep everything. Um, you know, um, you may yeah. contrast that with uh, particle physicists who have, have enormous accelerators where they bang protons together. And it turns out that there's so much information that comes out of those collisions. They have no choice but to throw away 99.99, I don't know how many nines go in there, percent of the data before, because they <laughs> simply cannot possibly keep up with processing it. So they have, they have built yeah. into the hardware filters to just look for the things that they're looking for. And so as, when an astronomer hears that, mm. that, they shudder because they know we are so ignorant about what's out there in the universe that we don't want to throw, in, throw out anything a priori and sort of keep, keep everything uh, going mm. as, uh, keep every bit of data that we can. Yeah. So these, yeah, I mean, these numbers are quite, quite striking. So, yeah, it says that, I don't know if I got this right, 32 trillion observations that's right. of and about similar, sim galaxies. similar numbers of stars. That's right. And the that's similar about number right. of stars, yeah. yeah. So, we're talking about something like, is it 20 No, 20, ter 20 terabytes. You're off by a factor of 1,000. <laughs> 20 terabytes, uh, 20 yes. terabytes. Yeah. 20 terabytes. Um, the, <laughs> at least the first incarnation <laughs> of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey was a few tens of terabytes. Um, we... LSST will basically get that quantity of data uh, every night uh, at the Rubin Observatory. So, um, so yes, and the end of the survey, you keep that up for 10 years, it adds up pretty quickly. And at the end of the survey, the numbers are tens of petabytes, uh, close to 100 petabytes. Um, hmm. And so, yeah. Is that so? Is it coming back to the to the US? Yes, yes, the, um, yeah. So the, as we just said, the telescopes in the Chilean Andes. Uh, but yes, will be will be piped in real time uh, through a network that goes through first Brazil and then into uh, Florida and then into uh, into the United States. Um, um, and so yes, the the majority of the processing will actually happen physically in the United States. That's right. Okay. Okay. And so, so, so what do you hope to find here, Michael? So, assuming that the experiment goes yeah. well, you get tons of data. What are the, what are the specific areas that, that you believe will, uh, well, will one of the questions is the one that we were talking about before, namely this uh, dark matter and dark energy question. Um, certainly one, one of the main, one of the key themes that, uh, uh, the Rubin observatory is really designed, uh, to address. And, um, one of the ways it does that is to, you know, we talk about dark matter and one of the problems with dark matter is by its, by, by definition, by, by its very name, it is not something that we can see directly. And so you say, how can we learn about dark matter by taking pictures? Yeah. Well, it turns out as Einstein uh, showed that um, matter can bend light. So if you have dark matter, clumpy dark matter, because dark matter gravitates and pulls together gravitationally, uh, it will be, uh, imagine a clump of dark matter in a galaxy beyond that clump somewhere. The, that, the light from that galaxy will get bent and therefore distorted 
by that lump of dark matter. Mm. And, um, and this is an effect that's, that's, that's measurable. The shapes of galaxies are systematically distorted yeah. by the distribution of dark matter that's out there. And we can measure that statistically and the, the current surveys are now just starting to begin to do this. And, and Rubin Observatory is really designed to do this uh, on, on the large scale with, with exquisite precision. Um, so this will give us a map now, not just where the galaxies were, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier, uh, but where the dark matter is and how mm. the dark matter is distributed. And that then gives you additional constraints on what the physical nature of the dark matter is. It turns out the dark energy also turns out to be important uh, in all of this. And it all becomes very, very exciting that, that way. So is it, is it because, um, so, so we can get some idea of the movement? Um, in of this, this, in the context of the dark, basically what we, remember I, I was talking before about trying to put together a coherent picture of how the structure in the universe yeah. today is related to the, what you see in the cosmic microwave background. Um, what this will allow us to do is what we see, what, what we did with the Sloan Digital Sky Survey is look at the distribution of galaxies. But I just said that galaxies represent mm. most of the mass of galaxies is in dark matter. And you really want to know what the dark matter is doing. The galaxies are almost an afterthought. And it's the afterthought that we can see, which is what we've used. But by measuring the distribution of dark matter, we can sort of measure more directly the quantity, the thing that, that at least in terms of the formation of structure in the universe, the thing that sort of counts more. And um, so this, and, and we can do this as a function of cosmic time, because again, we can, uh, we can look at different distances in, in the universe and that's referring to different, uh, different times in, in cosmic history. So we can ask the question, how did the dark matter um, clump together as a function of time? And that gives, uh, has the potential to give us fundamental new insights. And so, the, so we're getting yes, an idea yeah, of that, the distribution. Yes, exactly. Uh, gravitational what, lensing. I'm not sure I you actually used that term when I was describing these, this, this bending of light. But yes, this is gravitational lensing, which again is an effect um, first uh, predicted by Einstein. It's, a, it's an outcome of his general theory of relativity, I guess first seen famously for um, the change in the position of, of stars uh, during a solar eclipse, uh, but then um, seen in a in the context of galaxies only in the first seen in the late 1970s and has become a growth industry in our field ever since. And that objective, as, yes. as you mentioned, is sort of getting an inventory of the solar system. Ah. There is uh, planet yes. nine that is um, potentially yeah, there so as well, right? Yeah. People are excited about whether there might be another uh, significantly massive planet-like object. I have to use my terms carefully <laughs> in the outer solar system beyond the orbit of Pluto. <laughs> um, as you as you know, Pluto itself is uh, the least massive of all, uh, uh, more, less massive than any of the, the 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 planets that we usually refer to. And and indeed, there are several other objects seen in the outer solar system with with comparable masses. Um, but there's indirect um, evidence. Yeah which I am 80% convinced by at this point uh, that there is uh, there's a, a significantly more massive object quite a bit further away. Uh, this is the planet nine that you're referring oh, wow. to. Okay. Um, yeah. And which is, which, which made right. all the headlines. Right. 
we haven't actually found it yet. There's this quite indirect evidence that it that it might exist out there. Um, could well, this could yeah. um, Rubin Observatory find it? Perhaps uh, others are looking. Uh, uh, it turns out knowing the sky is a big place and knowing where to look is is not is not easy. Um, and the, if if it happens <laughs> to be a place in its orbit that is incredibly uh, sufficiently far away, uh, it will be below the sensitivity of even. The Rubin Observatory. So there's no there's no guarantee of a success whatsoever, but it would be a truly exciting discovery. There was some speculation, Michael. I don't know if this is just speculation. Yes, I that saw that. That was black hole. yeah. That was a, a spe yeah, speculation. I think is a fine word for that. <laughs> I mean, sure, why not? Let's call it a black hole. I, I'm not sure I have much more intelligent to say on that idea than that. Okay, but yeah. this is a good segue into quasars, um, and mm -hmm. this is another area of great interest for you. Um, so, so I remember yes. seeing some pictures in the eighties um, mm -hmm. that this this That's big right. jets yes. that come out of these these things. Um, I remember, maybe I'm I can't quite remember, but they used to be called quasars, and then they used to be called quasars. Is the term I used. Are we use, back to um, quasars um, again? People use those two, two terms okay. interchangeably. The history is QSO stands for quasi-stellar object, which is um, which is uh, right. referring to the fact that when they were first discovered, people remarked that if you just take a picture of them, it just looks like a dot, just like a star does in in a in an astronomical image, and and yet it wasn't a star. So thus, quasi-stellar objects. That's really and. <laughs> And okay. then it got shortened to quasars, to quasars and uh, that's the term that I, that I like. Yeah. Yes, I I, I think so. <laughs> it's easier. It's easier to say as well. <laughs> so, so, um, so our current exactly understanding is, is that well, one of the well, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, the Nobel Prize announced two weeks ago in physics was given to uh, Andrea Gez and Reinhard Genzel for their observations of stars in the vicinity of the very center of our own Milky Way, proving beyond any, any right. doubt that, um, that there is a, 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 what we call a supermassive black hole, uh, four million times more massive than the sun uh, at the center of the Milky Way. And um, so that the, our own Milky Way galaxy is not unique. In fact, as far as we can tell, uh, gal galaxies essentially all galaxies, all massive galaxies, sufficiently large galaxies have a supermassive black hole uh, in their center. So um, yeah. many questions then come up and say, well, where did that come from? How does it get there? How did it get started? Um, um, and hmm. one, the next question you want to ask is, okay, if there's a supermassive black hole there, um, what happens when something wanders too close to it? So black holes, famously, um, once you cro cross the event horizon, you're never escaping again. So black holes, in practice, uh, can only grow in mass. Um, you're, um, so a quasar. So a quasar is a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy into which material is actively falling. It, once it falls all the way in, it's gone, and we don't see any. There's nothing further to see. But on the way in, it's not going to go straight in on a radial, ra radially straight in. It's it's more likely to end up in a, in orbit around that black hole. And if we're talking about gas uh, moving in right. under the 
extreme gravity of the black hole, that gas is going to be moving enormously fast. And friction viscosity um, in the, what's called an accretion disk that forms around a black hole uh, causes it to heat up and, and glow. So paradoxically, a black hole, which is by definition sort of well, that's, that's the ultimate dark matter. There's nothing to see. But in its vicinity, uh, things can grow <laughs> astonishingly brightly. And indeed, that's, that is our current understanding of what the quasar phenomenon yeah. is. So, so I used to think that quasars, quasars are uh, sort of long mm -hmm. time ago. So mm -hmm. you have to look back in time. Well, the black holes, once, once, not, so the other thing to say is that... Um, when we're seeing a quasar, as I said, it's the process of material falling into the black hole. So we're watching the black hole grow, which is to say this is probably yeah. the mechanism by which the supermassive black hole in our own Milky Way uh, grew. So our, our own Milky Way was probably a quasar sometime in the past. Um, most galaxies today have right. what are called okay. quiescent black holes. Um, that is the material is not actively falling into them right now and they're sort of just sitting there and one has to work a little harder to, to infer their presence. Uh, but, but you're right. Um, the majority of the quasars, the, the time in the universe when, when mit, most, most black holes uh, gained most of their mass and were shining as quasars was indeed uh, in, in, um, in the, what's sometimes called cosmic noon, when the universe was probably three or two to three to four billion years old compared to the 14 billion years old. And so, yes, quasars in the nearby universe, the recent universe are quite rare, uh, but they're quite a bit more common uh, when we look at high redshifts. And so, so if I understand this correctly, Michael, so we don't, we, we know that there are supermassive mm -hmm. black holes in most of the reasonably sized galaxy centers but we don't see this jet well that, not which is sort yeah. of a differentiating um, some of them quasars, some right? of the nearby uh, black holes do have jets but you're right in in order to get the jets you need the material falling in um, oh, okay yeah you need to admit so any any supermassive black hole if that appreciable amount of material falls uh, well, the, into the, it um it yeah so there's two different that is related things that we've just talked about one is that's the material falls in it uh, goes in orbit around the black hole and forms what's called an accretion disk. So the mental picture you want to have is uh, this black ball yeah. that represents the, the black hole itself and a sort of uh, a dinner plate around it or a Frisbee. <laughs> I'm trying to draw a mental image here, which is the accretion disk. Yeah, right. The jets that then come out are, are, yeah. are due to uh, strong magnetic fields that thread that Frisbee or accretion disk that I've talked about, and that comes out sort of perpendicular to your Frisbee uh, there. Um, and whether that happens in every case or not is unclear. In fact, ma many quasars are shining very brightly and don't, don't have any obvious sign of, of jets. So it's, it's, not a it's not a universal connection, and okay. probably quasars go through different phases and different parts of their li life cycle, if I can use that that uh, that term when they might have jets and other yeah. times they may not. Um, and th those are some of the questions, fundamental questions we find ourselves at the, uh, at the forefront of research. Yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, uh, like I mentioned, I remember seeing those pictures and I was enamored by 
the, the uh, of tens of millions of, of light years. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. hundreds of millions. That's that's really big. Tens yeah, of millions. So. Tens of millions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Yes, yeah. But even tens of millions yeah, yes, of it's, light it's years, a, quite, a physical phenomenon that you can actually yeah. observe is just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so, so mm-hmm. in conclusion, I want to uh, return to Ruben again. So you've been intimately involved with this. This um, is going to be Two or three years. Again, years COVID has slowed things down, like so many things in our lives. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the official date yeah. has been October 2022 to start a 10-year survey of, of this um, project of, of mapping the heavens, and that will probably be delayed by some amount, and there's much discussion about exactly how to, how to do that. Um, but, but yes. So, so if you look for over 10 years, Michael, what, what, what do you think let me ask it differently. Ah, uh, so, so one of the wonderful about, things about astronomy uh, is, that, is, is how this, bad yeah. we are at answering that question, which is to say we've constantly been surprised. <laughs> if, if you could, you, you can go through the mental exercise of going back 10 years or 20 years and imagining asking um, yourself versions of that question. And in each case, you would yeah. be wildly wrong about what the most exciting things to happen are. Astronomy really is a field in which we, we are, <laughs> um, we our imaginations have been have been rather poor in in guessing sort of what the most exciting things uh, might be. So you know, if you ask what's that, <laughs> had we done this ten years ago, we would have. Uh, only a, a handful of people would have imagined that we'd be finding colliding black holes uh, with a, a LIGO through gravitational waves, for example. And that that is just a, you know one of the, the most exciting developments. Go uh, go back 30 years ago, no one no one was really t- talking seriously about black holes in the centers of galaxies, or the fact that planets ex- exist right. around other stars, or that the universe expansion is accelerating. Just to talk about some of some of the most exciting things that have happened sort of in my astronomical lifetime. Um, so, um, so you know, I could <laughs> I could tell some story about dark, dark energy and dark matter, but, but, you know, I suspect 10 years from now, we'll look back and say, boy, were we naive back there. We had just completely missed the point or this discovery came out of left field and, and, and it's really, yeah. really, uh, rock the foundations and and again it's up to our imagination to come up uh, with what that might be yeah yeah i was thinking on a very practical oh, basis yeah. if we yes. find an asteroid heading for heading for the earth <laughs> right. and we that, would, that would be very good that would be out of the way that yes, could be indeed. useful <laughs> mm-hmm. excellent excellent yeah yeah this I've has enjoyed been great it. michael Thank thanks much. so much for spending time with me okay bye bye Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.